0: Welcome to the great conversation where ideas and experiences are shared. And when shared, we have an opportunity to move markets, shape markets, and possibly even change the world. We're here today in the security marketplace, the risk, resilience, and security marketplace, where we're all trying to lead in a time of crisis. And our guests for today are Tim Wenzel from Facebook. Uh, Tim, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. And we've also added two other guests, our friends from Wild Leaders, Dr. Rob McKenna and Dr. Daniel Hallig. Hello,
1: gentlemen. Hi, Ron. Hey, Tim. And, <laughs> uh,
0: and guess what? Tim doesn't know Wild, and uh, I'm, I'm getting to know Tim. I've been uh, in contact with you, uh, as we said in our last call together, Tim, I've been stalking mm-hmm. you for years and we ended up uh, finally on a panel at one of the big industry events, and uh, we kind of liked each other. We liked how the conversation flowed and some of the great ideas that were coming out, and now we're starting to make it a habit, right, Tim?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, we just recorded uh, on Tuesday to be released uh, next Tuesday. Uh, GSD Talks, Getting Security Done, is uh, basically a series I'm doing with some industry thought leaders talking about leadership and management and and other aspects of the industry um, and kind of reframing the conversation about what we should be talking about versus what the industry is normally talking about. So thanks for uh, participating.
0: Well, I got to tell you too that, that whole thing, I I really urge uh, our viewers to go check out GSD getting security done uh, because Tim is going to capture many of the conversations he's had over the years uh, and in a, in a real dynamic way. So congratulations, I, I love being part of that, Tim, and appreciate it. Uh, I just got off the phone with, uh, with uh, Daniel and Rob as well where we had a great conversation about personal resilience, which was really topical because we were gonna have this discussion with you. Uh, so uh, Tim, just, just give the guys at Wild a little brief on your background. How'd you end up in security?
2: Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, when I was in high school, I was a security guard uh, for long enough to realize that I didn't want to do that anymore. And so I said, "I'm done with the security industry," and I became an army medic uh, and a paramedic. Uh, so it's funny we have two doctors on the phone. I'm I'm a paramedic, so <laughs> we're in the same industry. <laughs> uh, but then, uh, as I deployed to Iraq for the invasion in 2003, I was a medic assigned to military police, and I got to see a different type of security operation that I didn't know existed, and it became very interesting. So after I got back, ambulance got a little more boring, and I decided to get into executive protection. And I've kind of had a, a little bit of an interesting journey for today's call because my career has taken me uh, back overseas to Iraq. It's brought me to uh, being an instructor at the State Department. Um, and actually, when Benghazi happened, we were teaching diplomats uh, how to thrive and, and do well in Iraq. And Congress said, wow, you're teaching diplomats how to be safe. That's amazing. And this team I was on of seven people, we ended up having to stand up all the new security for diplomats in response to Benghazi. And we were uh, doing it for the accountability review board on Benghazi in Congress. Uh, and then, you know, somehow I landed at Facebook. I'm not even sure how that worked. And, uh, It's going to be uh, seven years total at Facebook coming up in the fall, which is crazy.
0: Was uh, if so, Facebook, you you ended up right in the midst of the technology sector and uh, which is, of course, um, disrupting our entire world uh, in in a good way and and a bad way too. technology rapidly increasing. So what's it been like for you to adjust to the pace. Of the technology sector what's that done to you personally
2: well it's a it's a lot of uh, problem solving and personal growth so um, i don't know if you're aware of this story but basically in 2000 i graduated high school out in the cornfield of illinois in 2005 i got my first computer uh, because i decided i need to get a job outside of the cornfield i don't have a way to look for jobs in 2010 i got my first smartphone and sent my first text. And in 2013, they said, "Hey Tim, can you take over executive, prote- uh, executive protection technology at Facebook?" And I said, <laughs> <laughs> "I'm totally getting fired." Uh, but being a paramedic, all you do is assess problems for your entire uh, your entire career, right? You meet a person, you're like, "What pain are you having? When did it start?" You ask these questions, your root cause analysis, trial and error, and then you find your root cause and you solve the problem. And it's the same in any industry.
0: Wow. So, uh, were you were you intimidated at first by the pace of change in that in that whole sector?
2: You know what? I have a secret. I, I'm basically always intimidated. I always feel like I'm the dumbest person in the room. I always feel like I'm behind the eight ball, and I think that's how I do my best work. But in all honesty, imposter syndrome is a real deal for me, and yeah. it's something that I've had to realize in myself that it's uh, not just something that women deal with. It's not just something that's an abstract idea. It's something that I have to recognize and work through. And now that I know, you know, things, things go forward much, much more easily.
0: By the way, most of you viewers and and listeners, uh, most of the time, uh, the there's no scripting of these calls. In fact, they're pretty raw. Uh, If I'm lucky, I send them a few questions uh, that I might ask or we have a quick uh, 20 minute review of what we're gonna do before we get on the call. So the question I am about to ask, I don't know what the answer is, but Tim uh, Tim and I, uh, as you know, the wild leaders were at my last great conversation in Florida, it was a, a tremendous infusion of people who are not in the security industry, but are subject matter experts in organizational cultures and leadership development. And it was really well received, Tim. And then uh, I, I introduced you to, um, to Wild, and you ended up on their Friday calls. Tell me about your first experience yeah. on one of their Friday calls. Uh.
2: Yeah, you know, so, you know, being the quintessential security person, they're like, hey, you should join this, like, leadership call. I'm like, great. This is going to be boring. And, uh, but they were going to spotlight me, so I had to come, right? Exactly. And it was... One of the most interesting things that I've done since we've all been on work from home with COVID, and I've actually only missed a handful of times ever since. And it was just very thoughtful conversation for managers and leaders to reflect on what they're going through, what their people are going through, and how to lead better. And it's been amazing. So I'm glad you guys are putting them on for free. Appreciate it.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. So.
0: So, uh, so, so, Daniel, since you're always the MC of those sessions, uh, what, what, what do you try to do in in those spotlights? What are you trying to do that helps infuse those wild conversations you're having?
3: Yeah, it's a great question, Ron. I think it's the same thing I want to do in every coaching conversation with a leader: is can we get a little bit below the skin, a little bit below the surface, and get into what I like to call, and we talk about in our team, as a leader's developmental edge, or at least approaching that. I often think of uh, a leader or leadership uh, like going to the gym and you quite literally, there are different pieces of equipment and exercises that we know from a lot of research will build leadership muscle. So I'm always curious about where's, where's the edge of your muscle? Where's the place where you're trying to build a little bit more strength? Um, And that's gonna matter for both you and for folks around you. And so that's, uh, I try to ask questions that I might not know the answer to like you said, but that hopefully might draw out a little bit about where someone is and what they're processing. And one of my basic assumptions is, I love collecting people's stories. I know you do that too. When I hear someone else's story, I can't help but find a little bit of my own reflection and processing about where I've been, who I am now, and where I'm going next when I hear somebody else. Um, so that's at least the ethos when I try to ask questions. And it's, I'm glad you asked that question too, because it works for a spotlight or for coaching. But even with people on my team or people I'm trying to develop um, or that I'm responsible for developing, that's the way I want to approach it is to invite somebody into their developmental narrative and hopefully ask questions that they will find value in answering that might be above my pay grade i might not, i don't have the answer to it but i want to help them start moving um towards that because so much of a leader's journey That's why we call ourselves wild is is a wild proposition it's unexpected there's twists there's turns what tim just shared you know it's not as though he graduated high school in the cornfield and said you know what i'm going to do this this and this and i'll be at facebook leading security i mean that's not as None of us, most of us don't have that story. Uh, we know so, we might meet some folks here and there, but it's it's entering into that question, that dynamic, and the tension, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was so funny when you were talking. I was thinking, if uh, if life's a book, uh, we really can't write the book before we live it, and and uh, and the story may take on twists and turns like any good book. Uh, that we uh, were unexpected, but the story's still worth reading. And, uh, and Tim, certainly that cornfield story, that genesis of who you were, uh, I'm sure the, the that has infused and informed who you are today. Uh, tell us about the cornfield experience that made you who you were.
2: Well, you know, um, yeah, in today's world, you have to become comfortable with change because that's the only thing that's assured to us right now. Uh, the pace of technology, the, the, the pace of world events, uh, how the world has become a smaller place, how fast I can get from one place to another change is inevitable. And, and that's really, uh, the essence of my experience. I went from a place to where people got degrees so that they could be high on the list to manage the hardware store. Because that was what you could do there, and here I am without a degree. You know, managing at a, a you know Fortune 100 company, and I'm I'm blessed. I'm I'm really blessed, but it really does help you understand that you don't need to have the answers off the bat. Doctors don't have well. These two doctors have the answers, but like medical doctors, they don't have the answers. They assess to find out the answers. And it's much more powerful to have the tools to figure out the answers than to think you have to have it at the beginning of any conversation.
0: So if you were if you were to put together, if you were mentoring the next generation and you threw out schooling, right, you threw out the internships and you said, these are the character traits I want you to develop, so you have the ability to respond in this environment in this day and age and be the best you could be, what would those be? What would be the scorecard for a resilient leader?
2: You know, I I think if you look at the business world of today, outsourcing and automation have changed the job roles available to us. So no longer are you in a job that's basically thoughtless um, if you're in the corporate world you're there to provide input to provide a perspective and to solve problems that ai can't solve yet machines can't solve yet people in other parts of the world can't easily solve yet and that's why the business industry is hiring people so first thing is critical thinking skills find a way to understand how to methodically think through a problem to identify its components and hypothesize on how it may be solved number two Uh, public speaking and public reading skills, you may not be the best person at your job. You may be on par with everybody else, but if you can stand up in front of directors, in front of vice presidents, in front of the C-suite, and you can speak, or you can read well back to them, you'll be relied upon to lead because that's a universal human fear. So I think those two things, if you can get comfortable speaking in front of people, reading in front of people, and you can contribute to the problem solving process and critical thinking, I think you can go as far as you want.
3: Can I just jump in, Tim? Well, you've said that, that critical thinking, that problem solving, you mentioned it a little bit ago. You talked about that root cause analysis, of the medic. And I think that's powerful you share that because um, for you, that's what's made you, it seems like that's the key thing that's made you successful. But not everybody who gets a degree at education in whatever field does that. Um, and I think, you know, one of the conversations you and I had briefly a week ago talking about in a time like this, in a crisis, um, oftentimes it can be easy to see folks freeze up or lose their composure. And even if they've been trained in those things to have those go out the window. And so when you, when you told me about being a medic, I thought of a couple of buddies of mine who've been military medics and, and, and how you are doing that real time in such an acute, intense uh, situation. I'm curious to hear more. What is your decision making or uh, crisis framework for making, for handling things like this when the answers aren't clear, right? There there is, it's not a yes and no. There, There might be some things that are, but there's a lot of gray.
2: Well, you know, we live in a world with complex problems. The world is not getting any simpler. Uh, So I think the biggest thing we can do is make whatever topic is on the table, whether it's, I need to make this technology better, I need to make a good presentation to this person, or I need to make a solid decision on behalf of my organization in the middle of this crisis, we need to simplify the decision-making process. Uh, So first of all, what is the outcome that we, not me, we are looking to achieve? What is the best outcome for the organization? And what are the minimum steps, the smallest amount of steps that get us there and take as much complexity out as possible? And you need to make sure that you are the person that can make the decision and that you're bringing all the other stakeholders that are required to make a quality decision to the table. And then second of all, you need to understand uh, you know right now we have all the civil unrest uh, you know going on in our world and it's sad to watch and you have a lot of leaders that have very tough decisions to make but i would argue that the decisions they have before them are not that difficult to make it's pretty clear but it is all the special interests and the political pressure surrounding this decision so how do we call them out and say hey this is where the organization wants to get to. This is the path to get there. But we have these really weird real factors that we have to take into effect. And here are the pressures they're applying. How do we make decisions in this environment? And, and I think that's the toughest part is to separate the extra pressure, the outside pressures to the actual problem. Um, because we often think of them one is the same and it makes it an impossible problem to solve if we don't separate them. It's two different conversations does that make sense
1: hmm. oh, Tim so uh, if I could I, I want to peel back the layers of the onion that is Tim because um, hearing part of your story it was interesting because there were these I so appreciated that you're describing that imposter syndrome that so many people feel and then it's surprising to given what you do and um, and then you kind of it felt like you explained part of your sort of a series of trips and starts and stops and kind of Venturing forward, you know, and then finding this path—is there, a, is there like a, is there a deeper why that you have discovered in why you're in the role that you're in now? Like that, you're like now I can see like this is, this is where this came from. Is there something rooted back in you?
2: Yeah, you know, um, by nature, uh, I'm a protector of people, uh, mm-hmm. a protector of of things. Um, I have that drive, you know, I remember, um, you know, even when I was young, you know, I'm young and I want to be in the army. That's all. If you asked my mom, she'd be like, he was 10 years old and we went to the grocery store and he was like, buy me guns and ammo magazine. And I was like, oh no, that's going to be terrible later on. But I always wanted to be a soldier, right? That's all I wanted to be. But at the same time, if I watch an action movie and I saw people in needless pain, that really bothered me to the point I couldn't watch it. Huh. And so I've always had that internal, like I have the ability and the drive to be able to protect people. And, and really, I think that's crucial to get into a line of work that you're made to do.
1: Interesting. Huh. Thank you. <laughs> Does
2: that answer your question?
1: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, how, how rare
0: is it, right? How rare is it that something that you felt early on as a feeling could turn into a profession. Uh, that, that's an amazing, amazing that story. Is. That is.
2: Well, and you know, um, you know my father, uh, he told me when I was young, he told me a couple things. One, you're gonna work for the rest of your life, almost all of your time. So find something you enjoy doing. And number two, whatever it is you do, make sure it's useful. Because you'll never have a problem being employed if you're a useful person.
0: Good, good practical advice. Good practical advice. You know, there's there's been a lot of discussion in my circles lately uh, uh, about the um, how we have started as a culture to see work as a burden. We can't wait to retire. <laughs> we can't wait for Saturday, right? And uh, right. and and very very seldom do we actually see almost a sacred nature of work, how it, it really is why we're here. There's a purpose to it. Um, and uh, uh, do you find many people in our industry who share that as, I bleed security. This is this is what I meant to do. This is the purpose and passion who I'm meant to be. Do you see that as a common ethos, if you will, in, in, a, in our industry?
2: Yeah, I, I do. Um especially I entered the industry um, through the executive protection portal. So if you're going to be protecting somebody else with yourself, um, there's a calling there. People don't generally say like, that sounds like a good time. I'm just going to put my life on the line for a stranger. Um, So I think people that come through the protective services portal definitely feel that way. Uh, And then, um, and there's a lot of people that, you know, got their start in government. Uh, or got their start in law enforcement and then they've kind of migrated to the security industry. But I think even most of those that migrated into the industry, um, they have that sense of purpose that they like preserving life, preserving well wellbeing um, because at the end of the day, it matters.
0: Hmm. So if purpose is something that's generally shared, by the way, you know, uh, uh, in this, again, back to this, ethos or culture that we have these days. Uh, we were just doing a, a, a webinar between Wild, myself, and some other security leaders, and we were talking about how some of the studies of CEOs is uh, uh, really having difficulty creating engaged cultures. And engagement is kind of a precursor to innovation and adaptability and a lot of other things, right? Engaged cultures, they just don't feel engaged in their jobs. And here is a whole industry of professionals, security people, who've already found their purpose and passion, but are struggling with some other things. Uh, What things have you found that they're struggling
2: with beyond purpose and passion? Well, you know, um, it's no secret that uh, transitioning from public sector to private sector in the security industry is tough. Um, There's workshops, entire workshops dedicated to you in the federal government, you're in the military, now you're coming to the private sector. Things are so much different. You have to wrap your head around that. Um, you know, For instance, in the government, in law enforcement, in the military, your scope of work is defined by executive order or the laws that were passed by Congress. So there's really no innovation. You have to fill the requirements of this law, and that's what you're here to do. And so when you come to the private sector and – you know, the CEO of a company says, Hey, what does security look like at this company? And you start talking about a government operation. They're kind of like, Oh, I don't think that really fits with our culture. And you're like, what is this culture that you speak of? This is just the way security <laughs> is done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we have to understand that we have to help the business see value. Now we're, what type of revenue are we able to achieve? Well, normally we're somewhat of a cost center. We cost money and don't provide income. So we need to provide value to that organization in other ways. And that's something that you don't get in the government and the military. The value is implied. I think that's one of the biggest struggles.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So Rob, Robin, uh, Daniel, when you're thinking of whole leadership development, Uh, Much of your work is around engagement and much of your work is around um, the ability to uh, have fierce engaged conversation, not only with yourself, but with others around you. Uh, And, and yet here's a whole industry that's a little discombobulated because they come from an agency or law enforcement or, or, uh, or the, uh, you know, uh, the military and And they're coming out of the government they're coming into the private sector a little discombobulated, possibly have the uh syndrome you were speaking to uh, of a little while ago rob um what what kind of things can they do to build up their leadership skills to seize the day and learn a different language what What can they do uh, psychologically
3: let me let me throw one thing out, and then rob i'll let you take it. One of the things that's been fascinating for me um, to just start getting immersed into this industry and see it from an external perspective. And at the great conversation we came to with you in Florida, um, one of the things I wrote down as an observation, it, it surprised me was the insecurity of the security leader. And that shocked me. We were joking at dinner. So I'm a, I'm a pretty decent guy. I'm 6'1", 210. Uh, and we're at dinner, and I, I've, I've got these two guys on each side of me, and I look like the tiniest child. Rob was laughing because the, <laughs> the two guys who we had dinner with, I mean, they're they're massive, you know, ex-military. I'm like, I look like a kid. Uh, I thought I was a decent-sized, you know, guy. But it, it was just, these are people who are, are I mean, what, what, what Tim is saying, like, a protector of people. Like, they're, they're confident. They, they know what they're good at, and so – it, I had a little um, dissonance going on. I was like, what, what, what is it? Um, and I know Rob and I, we, we talk often about, a lot of our work is about how do we help a leader be deeply secured in who they are? And so that question of purpose is, is important. Um, and so Rob, you might get into some of the most more specifics, but I think that's the thing that, that surprised me that um, I see, I'm seeing in some folks, but I want even more, even hearing Tim mention that imposter syndrome If he hadn't, had he not said that, I wouldn't have guessed that because he presents as a confident, capable person who knows what he's doing and he's logical and thoughtful. And so that's been a surprise to me. And I I guess my hope is um, to, 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 I guess, not answer your question, but add a question on top is what does it look like for security leaders to have deep security themselves as they then lead and secure others? So I know Rob, if you have some thoughts based on that.
1: Well, um, first of all, Ron, it's, I mean, Tim, you think you feel intimidated when you walk into situations, try following the guy whose life looks like a Netflix special meets, you know, an action hero. So, um, and and I think also what's fascinating in in like, when I think about my own childhood is I read a lot of guns and ammo as a kid and it was, uh, and it was, and it's not because I was, for anyone that's offended by that, but it was, it was more just, I was a part of me that was drawn to that. And Daniel knows this about me. a lot of the folks that even Ron has introduced us to that are just more people who have served in the military. I've always had that 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 question. A lot of, I realize a lot of people don't, but I've always wondered what kind of soldier I would have been. And so it's, it's interesting, but I didn't have that pathway. It just wasn't anywhere and it wasn't around me. And I—and so being able to have friends uh, coming out of the military or who are in has been really important to me. Um, and so I think even the expanse that you even invited us into, Ron, To meet your friends and your network has been has been really important. If I can I tell this is just to tell one, I'll tell it briefly but my background, Tim, is that I grew up um, the son of I was the youngest of four kids but I was the son of a a university president and uh, my mom, my mom and dad were in that role and and so in many cases, I think a lot of my work started there because I watched my parents where the only times, only in some places, the only safe place to have a conversation that was whole was around our dinner table. And, and someone said to Daniel and me a couple of years ago, he said, so Rob, so tell me if I get this right, you tried to recreate that dinner table for other leaders and spent your career doing that. And I think it's, um, and so it's interesting, like listening to you, the context, and I was like, oh, that you know, Ron, I was like misting up. as as i'm like i think there's part of that that's true and my heart has always been and then good mentoring of my older brother who was in this field and and then just work across whether it's all kinds of the usual suspects on the corporate side working with nonprofits, working with government organizations and and what daniel and i know and, and i certainly discovered over the years is that while the contexts were different there was a common human factor that was going on that people people dismiss away um, their own story because they're like, well, it's it's probably people in other industries get it, but I don't. Or, Or, you know, it's like this, it's different over there. And we do work in India with Dalits and tribal people who are outside of the caste system. And it's unbelievable how similar the story is of a Dalit in India to a CEO in the US. But they both want to dismiss it away as if uh, that's probably true of people who are suffering you know suffering in India or outside the castes and then it, it, the folks in India want to say well that's that's, that's a CEO thing to deal with the conversation at some level sounds pretty similar um, it just has a different context and and so that's just been a powerful thing and so I think the thing when you answer the question Ron, around really creating deep deep more deeply seated leader development we do this in every other industry and it's like, or in every other discipline for people that, when people go to college, right, they take a whole curriculum in business. They take strategy, they take finance, they take economics, they take marketing, you know? And, and it, it's interesting because when we when we deal with people who went through that whole degree process and badging, you know, not one of them ever comes, I'm not, I'm not slamming this, by the way. <laughs> it's like, I, I have those, that, you know, I went through that process and I'm like, I wanna go back. But not one of them ever comes back and goes, I just want to retake my finance class. Although sometimes I do, but there's a, what they say is like, no one taught me how to lead. No one, no one offered me the same questions. I got on that midterm exam and that final exam to prepare me for what we know from four decades of research that includes, it's not one thing. It's my competence is affecting my motivation is affecting my, my work and my family and my, um, and the goals I'm setting and achieving or not achieving are affecting my forward efficacy. And, and it's this whole, so I look at Tim and I, I see this system of variables that we, that's what we do is creating a system to say, because I, I, and Ron knows this, Tim, I'm just not that interested in leadership, but I am, prof- <laughs> I am profoundly, inter- that's why I don't read it. I don't read, I don't like leadership books and then I write them, but I, but what I'm profoundly interested in is leaders. And it's a different thing. We talk about them differently. So I look at everybody on this call and every leader that we get to interact with, whoever they are, and I see that system of variables, you know, that are going on. And if we could both, both ass, not assess to test, but give them a sense of where they are developmentally, because it, it's, it's opening up the questions. They would then allow them to learn in the next, con- I just, one last thing Ron, uh, is next week, our co- our conversation in the wild our conversation is on adaptive performance and the three major variables within adaptive performance. These are awesome. Uh, the ability to learn from past experience, uh, emotional uh, non-reactivity or regulation, and the ability to read context quickly.
0: Context, you know,
1: the ability to read context quickly emotional regulation and learning from past experience. And that's, and it's a different way. It's a, there are, there are two really good ways to measure performance, right, Daniel. <laughs> and this is kind of a third pathway in terms of thinking about what does performance look like in an adaptive sense. So, um, uh, I'm that's just a, you just got my brain going off.
2: So I'd There's, like that. those three oh, things that you just said. Um, so as Daniel was talking about, you know, the insecurity with insecurity, like I've actually written that down. That's one of our biggest problems because security is done in environments. So if you're in the military, you're comfortable on base, you're comfortable in uniform, you're comfortable in a combat zone. But if I have to learn how to wear a suit and be comfortable in that suit and walk totally. on marble floors,
1: thank you. Yes.
2: Where do my security skills come in, right? Uh, and, and the same, you know, I I've spent um, lots of time working overseas, and business people would come over. And they are completely disrupted because they're out of their element. And part of my role was to get them comfortable enough in this new environment Good. to be able to do business. Um, and, and so that adaptability is huge because we base our competencies on the environment we're used to exercising them in. Mm-hmm. So let me, uh, I'm sorry, Daniel, go ahead.
3: I, uh, a couple questions I think of as, as big questions. Um, And and Rob, I don't even know if you and I have talked about this, but these are, I think, some of the bigger macro questions in the background. Um, Who are you is key, so that self-awareness. And there's a lot of stuff around that to the who are you. And even there's a question before that, whose are you? So whether that's that calling, that purpose, a relationship with God, uh, beholden to family, uh, a, a, a draw to help a certain population of people. So I often think whose are you? Who are you? Where are you going? And and not just as a um plot the map destination path, but like an iterative as I get close to the destination I might realize is a different place I'm going. And so I, I I'm I'm continually um calibrating and orient orienting my compass. And then how am I gonna get there? And those those questions in dynamic. So I think I often think of those are those are four key questions that a leader is probably um needing to be asked or asking often and as leaders or developing other leaders how can we bring those questions to the surface with intentionality mm-hmm. so that they're not you know below the iceberg in the in the water they're actually up up top and and i think as we start asking those questions that that forward progress yeah. and that security for ourselves can start to emerge i think right there um uh, when we uh
0: put this When
3: we put this on
0: the website for future viewing for our stakeholders, I think we'll uh, add a handout, a wild leader handout on the four questions. I I think that would be awesome. If you'd be willing to do that, you too. Mm -hmm. Um, Let uh, let me just tell you a quick story and maybe it's a way for each of you to help me wrap this up. Um, Way back when I had been successful naive. I I didn't even realize how naive I was that most people don't have success after success after success. And I had started up a company and for the first time I was going to go after venture capital. So I'm in the room with venture capital and this uh, kind of this icon of the industry in that space. And and he, uh, if you don't know it already, most investment capitalists, the first thing on their scorecard, on whether they're gonna be invested or not, is who's gonna do this? Who's the leader? Who's the nature of the leader? And I'll never forget, because I'm going over my background and what I've done before, because I'm gonna prove I'm worth the money, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't trust you. (laughs) And I asked, and of course, I'm totally blown away. I'm going, why? And he goes, you've never failed. I don't know what you would look like with failure. I don't know what you would look like if you were suddenly insecure in a given moment. I don't trust you because you haven't had a failure. And I thought as you were all talking, wouldn't it be interesting, back to your insecurity uh, notion that you wrote down, Tim, wouldn't it be interesting if we, the biggest skill we could teach is how to live within the moment of not knowing the moment we don't have the skills and the moment we've actually failed. How does that strike you as a way to wrap up this
2: conversation? You know, I think it's um, it's funny because where do we get all of our breakthroughs in the world and society? We get it from science, we find new things and do different things and find better ways to get things done. And all of science is based on the scientific method, which relies on failure Ooh. to narrow down the possibilities. And yet, often in business, we see that as not being good at your job. So where is the tolerance for failure? And I think as leaders, how do we foster that, that tolerance for failure as long as you're learning your lessons? So with the wild team, maybe, is, is the truth that –
0: Maybe the word is wrong. The way we look at that word is wrong. What, or or is it something else? What do you two say?
1: Well, um, we did an interesting, we did in another part of my life, did a whole educational experience around failure for an entire quarter. And it was interesting because it got into all kinds of things around, am I a failure or did I fail? The whole identity label. Um, I think, I don't know if I would say and it, by the way uh, Tim it's the same in the leadership development literature it's pretty clear that failures are a massive feature the problem yeah. was when we built when we built built systems where people could map to failures um, it was kind of felt irresponsible because you can't these are these are failures you wouldn't wish on anybody and so you can't you can't do that but the fact is that life will bring them and then the question is if we know failure teaches we can't can we look for failures that's that's not the wrong right approach and it, by the way it's both successes and failures like you need enough enough forward momentum. And so I think it's just what you were describing was consistent, but I think we have to be really thoughtful in, in moving toward, again, the paradox of these, the tension between needing success and failure. Because if everyone fails, when businesses say like, this is an okay place to fail, well, yes and no. Because you don't have a business if all you do is fail. And then, and then companies try to, there's all kinds of stories I can tell you about the way that they tried to, to use I that do. data and that research. Let me If I could go back, Ron, because you were, you were calling out something and, and Daniel regarding this deep-seated like security, more secure security leaders are no longer having insecurity. I've been thinking a lot about trust over this season. And uh, trust is an interesting thing because trust is not, you just don't get trust. It's the, it's the actual research around how trust is built. It's a whole other conversation. So it's like all the oversimplification on trust is, is could be a little bit reckless. But here's what's interesting for me in this season. I thought a lot about trust falls you know what I mean? You've done those in a ropes course. You just, and it's like, you literally fall back, but you have, for whatever reason you have confidence, those people are going to catch you. When we talk about deep seated, I was thinking about how much faith it takes for me to sit down in my chair. You know, my chair is sitting right here. And I was thinking like, I I sit down every day and how do I know it's there? But it's interesting because my chair has certain components of it. There's a seat, there's arms, there's a back. It's got a, it's got a foundation that I've, I've learned to that it's that it's there but there's so there's a structure of, of, of deep more deeply being more deeply seated as well as an idea or a kind of a relational piece of it and I think that's what's kind of interesting is bringing it alongside these when I say structure it's things like knowing I have certain confidence um, having thought about like where am I going and why and hearing Tim's story because I believe that Tim even telling a story again this morning might change something in his afternoon you know and um, that knowing that having some idea of the experiences I've had, knowing whether I feel confident or not, if I, as I transition out of the military into a civilian context, all these things are a part of, that psychologically are playing, like psychology is the invisible stuff. And it's not the touchy-feely stuff. It's not the soft science. It's the harder science. I mean, Daniel and I don't get hired because, you know what I mean? There isn't a massive industry in this space because people don't know it's there. And so I think there's, there's a, all I'm saying is that there's a, there's, a, there's a need for some structure that provides us a way to assess where we are and what the chair looks like so that we can begin to sit down in trust and faith that that chair is going to be there. That includes things like Daniel and I would say, like a network that I can, that I can lean on as I, as I lean back. So you um, just got, that's where you, my mind went wrong with your, your statement.
0: Well, it, it's interesting you say that because as you were speaking, um, it It dawned on me it dawned on me that uh, when I went through your curriculum, if you will, uh, you were doing three things for me. Uh, you may not sum it up like this, but i 'll give you my experience yeah. you were one getting me to begin to ask the great questions around the around the building I had constructed to date Mm
2: -hmm. the
0: great questions of Mm -hmm. where I would go next with that scaffolding that I, you were helping me create Mm -hmm. and finally align that with a deeper purpose and passion and who I want to be, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what I do. And it was, uh, it was really, it was really clarifying. So, um, so, so when, when Tim locked on to the insecurity of security and I started thinking about his, what I'll call his Columbo nature, you know, he walks around thinking, you know, I, I'm the stupidest schmo in the room, uh, but it's his strength because the stupidest schmo in the room allows him to be insatiably curious and asking questions of others and learn yeah. more and more it's his scaffolding his insecurity is his strength i think what do you, what do you two think
3: it, it's it's that and it's his presence because he doesn't he doesn't communicate an insecure presence and so and i know based on what he said i'm assuming he works he's worked or works hard and then he settles in but um, so that insatiable curiosity the willingness to problem solve and think um, but I'm thinking you're a good medic. Like, if, if, I, if, I, if, if I'm your patient and you're freaking out, oh, dude, like, oh, all this day this long. Bad. This is bad. <laughs> like, you know, so you, like, you might be freaking out inside, but you're still calm. You're like, it's, like, how's it going? We're working at it. I'm like, that's not good or bad. You know, you're not going to make me feel uh, good, better than I should be. You're also not going, I don't know, man. You should start praying.
2: <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be the medic that says, oh, let me take a look at that. Like, oh, that's terrible. Oh, cover that back up. I don't want to look at that right now.
3: <laughs> you
2: know, and, and Ron,
1: Ron, one of the thing that you,
2: you raise, I
1: was thinking, I was thinking about um, the way we talk about leaders today. And, and Tim's a great example of this. Cause it's like, it's precisely his vulnerability and his presented strength that make him intriguing and an invitation to so many people who would see this and go like, Oh, I, he feels that I could be like that guy, you know? And, and it's, um, And I was thinking about this, like, I think about the election. I hate to go all political, but think about that, how everybody is like, doesn't like the options maybe, or they do. And I thought, so let's change it. What if 20 years from now, we had 20 candidates and we were like, I don't know which one to pick. They're all so amazing. And one of the issues is, is that when, is that the people who have the compassion and the heart that we want, they, they don't have the fortitude to stand what it actually takes to lead unless we help them. You know, some because the people who have the fortitude are usually automatically are a little bit disconnected. And so what would it take to prop up some people who actually have some of that connective tissue, at least in their moment where they are developmentally and have the efficacy? But our world pounds these people because leading is hard. And so I think about Tim and I go, I want more, like Daniel says, I want him working on me if I'm, you know, it's like if we could get more people in, invited into a conversation who have both that courage, but also like the imposter syndrome. Wouldn't you love it if the first question we asked senior leaders was this? Like, tell me why you're hesitant to take this job. I mean, anybody with half a brain should have an answer to that question. Like, you know, what I, like, but we don't. But we don't let people answer that question. We beat them up if they do. So,
0: I'm just eat, yeah so give us give us if you can, Daniel, you're so good at this. Give me uh what would it look like question that we could end this great conversation with, Daniel
3: What would it look like to bring our beauty and our brokenness to the crises around us? Hm, it's good.
0: And let's sit on that one. And uh, we'll have a follow-up conversation on what we thought about and who we talked to about it in future Great Conversations. You can find Sage Conversations at sageconversations.com. Thank you, gentlemen. This has been a wonderful conversation.
3: Enjoyed it.
1: Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Thanks, Daniel.
3: All right.